For the past few weeks, we've been looking at some of the core commitments of the early church. We've been camping out in these verses in Acts chapter 2. Luke, the author of Acts, tells us that these earliest believers, this kind of first New Testament church, devoted themselves to these things, the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so three weeks ago, we considered what it means for us as a church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. We saw that that means a devotion to the scriptures, that we commit ourselves to God's word, to the Bible, but also to a certain way of reading the Bible, that we read the Bible Christocentrically, which means we're reading it with, a, with Jesus goggles on, because Jesus himself said the whole thing's about him. And so we read it looking for Jesus because he's there. And most centrally, we read it with a commitment to the gospel, that at the heart of the apostles' message, at the heart of their teaching, was the good news of salvation for sinners. It was the good news of what Jesus had done to save sinners, that he embodied, he put on flesh and, and left heaven as the eternal son of God and became one of us to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserved that he suffered as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, that he was put in a grave and that three days later he rose again from the dead, that he is the risen, ascended, reigning king who will soon return, that this was really at the heart of the apostles' message. And the early church devoted themselves to this message, and so we want to be a church that devotes ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We devote ourselves to the gospel. Two weeks ago, Pastor Brett unpacked for us what it means to be devoted to fellowship. And we saw that that word fellowship in the Greek is the word koinonia. It communicates this idea of, of partnership and collaboration and commitment. It's, it's more than a potluck, right? It's not less, amen, right? It's not less than a potluck. It's more than a potluck. It's, it's this collaborative sharing in life and ministry together. It's, it's the relationships that naturally emerge out of shared life and shared mission. For these early believers, this really took shape in the form of, of generosity. We read that here, that they, they were selling their possessions and property and distributing the proceeds to those who had need. That It looked like generosity. It looked like care for one another. They, they, they committed themselves together in Bible studies and meals that lingered on in living rooms for hours. Koinonia is really this idea of experiencing church as a family. And then last week we had our friend Pastor Morgan Burns from Redeemer come and be with us. And we looked at this idea of the early church's devotion to, to prayer. That these earliest believers in Jesus didn't use prayer as a transitional element in their worship services or their lives. That it, it, it was more than before meals and bedtime. That, that they really lived into prayer. They really prayed because they believed in a real God who hears them and answers their prayers. That he had invited them into fellowship. That he wanted to know them intimately. They were a praying people. Well, this morning we're going to continue on in this series looking at uh, the early church. But we're, we're going to pivot just a little bit. There's still more truth to dig out of these verses, but instead of looking at a core commitment of the early church this morning, I, I want to direct our attention instead to how Luke describes their disposition. I, I, I want to key in on, on what it says in these verses about the dominant emotion of this group. 
And so we're going to focus on the felt experience of what it was like to be in the room when these believers were together. We're going to consider the aura of their fellowship. Now that may sound weird to you. You may wonder, why does that even matter? Right? It might be a weird thing to preach about the believer's disposition or their emotions. Maybe you've even heard before that emotions are unreliable and that we shouldn't be led by them. You ever heard that before? There's some truth to that. I think there's certainly a danger in overemphasizing emotions. That we can make our faith too much about how we feel in the moment. Unable to move forward in faith because we don't feel like it. Right? That, that can be unhealthy. Or, or thinking that the entirety of our Christian lives is supposed to be lived in the perpetual camp high. Do you remember going to camp as a teenager and coming back with that camp high and it's like the whole Christian life is supposed to feel this way? That's not reality. Just have kids. Just have kids. Just wait. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bill. We're going to wake up. But can I tell you this morning that there's also an opposite and equal danger? And I think it might be the greatest danger for many of us. That we can live this hollowed out, unsurprised, familiar faith that is absent of any real affections. Ivan Mesa comments that many Christians today have a well-versed knowledge of Scripture, but an empty and hollow experiential reality. Mike Cosper adds to this, we can be mentally signed off on all the right doctrine and still be practically disconnected from the way of life that doctrine implies. It's why we can sing songs like Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and stand unemotionally moved. Or we can heartlessly confess, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus, and I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. We can confess that. We can say it together and not be moved by what we're saying. Worse, some of us might even associate Christian maturity with stoicism. That the more we grow in Christ, the less emotional we'll become. That is not at all what we find in the scriptures. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's a truth statement. That's more than a truth statement. That's language that invokes the senses. It's visceral and emotional and experiential. I want you to taste that the Lord is good. Your love, oh Lord, is, is better than life. 
Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. One day spent in your house, God, beats thousands spent on Greek island beaches. If these weren't psalms, we might be tempted to criticize them as overly dramatic Taylor Swift lyrics. (laughs) Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Can you hear Paul bubbling up with emotion? It's like he can't help himself. He gets to the end of 11 chapters of gospel glory and he goes, I, I got to go somewhere with this. And he just erupts in worship. What, what we find in the Bible is that there are corresponding emotions to the truths we profess. That, that what we profess to believe and how we embody and express those beliefs should go hand in hand. We, we know this to be true even at the horizontal level, right? From the human to human level. Let, let me call on the band Extreme to help us. If you're over the age of 40, you might know this song. Saying I love you is not the words I want to hear from you. It's not that I want you to not say, but if you only knew how easy it would be to show me how you feel. More than words is all you have to do to make it real. What would you do if my heart was torn in two? More than words to show you feel that your love for me is real. What would you say if I took those words away? Then you couldn't make things new just by saying, I love you. More than words. Life is more than words. Love is more than words. And the Christian faith is more than cold orthodoxy. There should be a corresponding relationship between our beliefs, our attitudes, and the atmosphere that we inhabit together. Pastor Ray Ortland warns us that it is possible for us to unsay by our practical church culture what we say in our official church doctrine. That it is possible to hold the gospel as a theory even as we lose it as a reality. Do you hear what he's saying? You can profess a truth and unsay what you profess in how you live. It's not just what we profess to believe as the people of God. It's not only what we communicate and adhere to theoretically, confessionally. It's also the social dynamics that are experienced among us. It's the atmosphere that we inhabit together. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord with our lips. But it's another for someone to enter into the atmosphere of City Life Church and to walk away saying, Jesus is Lord because of the felt experience of being among a group of people reveling in the presence of the risen Christ. To enter into a gathering of believers should be more than an introduction to orthodox truth statements. Shouldn't be less than that. Should be more than that. It ought to be an immersion into the presence of of Almighty God. The author of Hebrews describes being in the fellowship of the church as tasting the heavenly gift and the powers of the coming age. 
whatever that means, and I'll admit to you, there's some mystery there, right? Tasting of the heavenly gift and the powers of the coming age. Whatever that means, it means more than business as usual. The assembly of believers together, worshiping Jesus, I think what the author of Hebrews is saying is an hors d'oeuvre of heaven. It's a foretaste of the kingdom of God. And so listen again to how Luke describes these earliest believers. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and they held things in common. They sold their possessions and distributed the proceeds as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to to meeting together in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. I want to key in on those first five words this morning. I've got a one-point sermon. Everyone was filled with awe. What characterized the atmosphere of the early church was awe. That word awe in the original language is, is the word phobos. It's the word from which we get phobia. It means fear. And to our modern ears, we hear that word and it immediately has a negative connotation. We associate it with a threat or a danger. But in the scriptures, this word is used diversely. It's used in in various ways and it has a more nuanced idea to it. In Romans 13, 7, the Apostle Paul tells the Roman believers, pay your obligations to everyone, taxes, to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe honor. That word respect is the word phobos. It's the same word. And clearly what Paul is saying here is that believers should not, he's not saying that they should dread those in authority, but he's saying that they should respect them, that there should be an appropriate recognition to those in authority, that they should have a healthy reverence for those in positions of leadership. Or think about Luke 5, where Jesus heals a paralyzed man. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I tell you, get up, Take your stretcher and go home. And Luke recounts that immediately he got up before them, picked up what, had been li- what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And then he says, everyone was astounded. And they were giving glory to God, and they were filled with phobos. And said, we have seen incredible things today. Filled with phobos, filled with wonder. Filled with surprise. In Mark chapter 4, the disciples are on a boat when suddenly this terrible tempest breaks out and the boat begins to get tossed to and fro in the waves. And and the disciples are scared for their lives. They're they're fighting to keep the vessel right size up. And in a frenzy, they finally realize Jesus is on this boat. We should probably go wake him up. And so they run down into the stern of the boat where Jesus is asleep. Don't you love that picture? And in a frenzy, they say to Jesus, we're about to die. Don't you care about us? Do something. 
And Jesus stands up, opens his mouth, and says, peace, be still. And immediately the rain stops falling. And immediately the winds stop blowing. And the waves hush and go frighteningly still. And Mark says, they were phobos. And began to ask one another, who is this guy? That even the winds and the waves obey him. They went from a sense of being overwhelmed by the storm to being more overwhelmed in the presence of one who has authority over nature. They were awestruck. Pastor Tim Keller says, when you find yourself in the presence of someone you so revere, someone you are in awe of, you tremble. That was the disciples in that moment. They trembled in phobos. They, there was a sense of terror over the, the immensity of who Jesus was, over the power of who Jesus was. There's perhaps no more beautiful illustration of this idea of, of phobos than in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in this story, these four children discover a, a new world through a magical wardrobe. And in this world, they encounter some crazy things. They encounter these talking creatures, one of whom is a beaver. And, and as they're talking with Mr. Beaver, he begins to tell them about Narnia, that this evil witch has cast a spell over Narnia, making it winter all the time. But then he also begins to tell them of Aslan. The narrator says that at the mere mention of his name, the children felt something jump inside of them. Mr. Beaver goes on to tell them that Aslan is the, is the king of Narnia, the lord of the whole wood. And although they haven't seen him much lately, there are rumors that he's recently been seen. And eventually, little Lucy, the youngest of the four children, asks of Aslan, is, is he a man? And, and Mr. Beaver says, Aslan a man? Of, certainly not a man. Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. And when they learned this bit of information, that was a little terrifying. And so Susan, Lucy's sister, asks Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? To which Mr. Beaver answers, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Not safe, but good. It's not until chapter 12 that the children finally catch a glimpse of this lion. Lewis narrates, Aslan stood in the center of a crowd of creatures who had grouped themselves around him in the shape of a half moon. The beavers and the children didn't know what to do or say when they saw him. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. 
For when they tried to look at Aslan's face, they just caught a glimpse of the golden mane in the great royal solemn overwhelming eyes, and they found that they couldn't look at him and went all trembly. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets right out of them. And they now felt glad and quiet and didn't seem awkward to them to stand and say nothing. Good and terrifying at the same time. Made them trembly and yet took the fidgets right out of them. They were filled with awe. You ever stood at the edge of a cliff and gazed over the edge of that cliff to the great abyss below out onto the horizon? It's a view that's frightening and beautiful all at the same time. It takes your breath away. It sort of freezes you and you're overwhelmed by it. And there's a part of you that wants to take two steps back out of fear, but there's another part of you that doesn't want to move at all. You just want to stand there and take it all in. Have you, have you found yourself in a moment in your life when you're enraptured by something to such a degree that you almost can't breathe? Now, here's the question. When you think of Jesus, do you stand in awe of him like that? Does he ever take your breath away? And do you recognize how different this is than merely believing in him? The demons believe. They don't stand in awe. As Luke searched for a word or a phrase to describe the dominant emotion of the early church, he landed on this word, phabos. The prevailing ambiance of the early church was awestruck wonder. They were filled with awe at the thought of Jesus. As they devoted themselves to word and prayer and one another, the spirit was moving among them, doing unexplainable things, and they were overwhelmed with phobos. Tom Kluwer says, deep, happy trembling is the normal reaction when saints stand or fall before their Savior. I think if we're honest, we feel a significant distance between that description of the early church and our own experience. For many of us, it's been a long time since we've felt a sense of awe before Jesus. Maybe some of you would be honest enough to admit, I don't know that I've ever felt that. I don't know about you, but I long for it to be said of us. Everyone was filled with awe. Don't you want that? Don't you long to experience that? So that's the question, right? How do we experience that? Recently, Pastor John Piper tweeted this. Can we reassess whether Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits? Then he quoted Hebrews 12, 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Now, if you know anything about me, you know how ironic it is that I just quoted that quote. 
because almost every Sunday I'm in here with a white mug of coffee. I love coffee. I don't think that the answer to our awe anemia is cutting out coffee. But I do appreciate Pastor Piper's concern because I, I, I think what he's attempting to confront is nonchalance. That we waltz into worship sometimes with a casual indifference. I think what he's pushing on is the fact that many of us have a domesticated view of God. That if we were to truly get honest, many of us have grown bored with Jesus. That we yawn at the gospel. And we show up to worship more as, as auditors and as critics than eager participants. We've, we've, we've lost our awe. There's a reason why churches used to erect grand cathedrals in their worship centers. It, it was to communicate a sense of, of transcendence and wonder. It was to take our eyes up. We're in one of these rooms, right? We have European stained glass. It's high in here. The, the volume goes up. And the whole point was to communicate a sense of transcendence and wonder. And in place of that, most modern churches have, have, have built these, these spaces to communicate imminence, that God is near and approachable. And I think both of these realities are true and important. But I'll be honest with you that many of us have lost all sense of transcendence and wonder. Kluwer warns us, there is a grave danger that we grow comfortable with Christ. That the one who is by nature awesome, who commands the violent storm, whom angels cannot look upon, shrinks to be malleable and small, a pocket-sized deity. The Christ whom the Spirit reveals to the early church is anything but small. He invokes trembling, joy-filled fear in the hearts of those that gaze upon him and love him. Church, what we need is a right-sized view of Jesus. If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestations of the glory of God, says Piper, it is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world, your soul is stuffed with small things, and there is no room for the great. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus gives a warning to the church in Laodicea. He tells John the apostle, he says, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. 
To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. What was the essence of God's rebuke of this church? It was that they had become lukewarm. Laodicea was situated about five miles south of Areopolis. And Areopolis was built on a a plateau. And and on this plateau, there were these hot springs that came directly out of the earth. And they were full of, of these rich minerals. And people would go to these hot springs for bathing and healing. Ten miles on the other side of Laodicea was Colossae, and and Colossae also had natural springs, but they were cold springs. They were perfect for drinking. And and, and so Laodicea lay between these two other cities, Areopolis and Colossae, and and using an aqueduct system, they would funnel the, the hot springs and the cold springs into their city. But there were places where these aqueducts would converge where the hot water from Areopolis and the cold water from Colossae would, would mingle together. And it would result in these lukewarm puddles of nasty, unusable water. Jesus uses this imagery to confront this church. He says, you're lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold. By the way, Jesus is not saying here that he would rather you be completely devoted to him or completely undevoted to him. That's not the point here. He's encouraging them rather to be undiluted and unmixed. Cold water is useful. Hot water is useful. Lukewarm water is nasty. And he's saying to them, be undivided in your love. Be undivided in your loyalty. They had become a muddled church. Their affections for Jesus had grown weak. Their love had waned. Notice the, issue, the call that Jesus issues. Be zealous and repent. Be zealous. I wonder if that's a word for us. Have we lost our zeal, church? Do we need to repent of our nonchalance? Listen to what Jesus says to them. See, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We, we often hear these, these verses used evangelistically, right? As if Jesus is inviting unbelievers to open their hearts up to him so he can come in and be their Lord. That's fine. But in context, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking to a church. He's talking to professing believers. He's inviting them to let him in. In fact, when you dig a little deeper, what you'll discover is that there's an Old Testament reference to these verses found in the Song of Songs, in the Song of Solomon, which is a love poem. For most of church history has been understood to be a picture of Christ and the church. And so what I think is happening here is Jesus is saying to these believers, hey, I want you to open yourself up to intimacy with me again. I want you to know me intimately. I want to make myself known to you. What what characterized the early church, along with the devotion to the word and prayer and fellowship, was a sense of awe. They were a worshiping church. Their hearts were open to Jesus. They were captured by him. And as a result, it emanated wonder. They were marked by glory. To enter into their presence was to get a taste of heaven. 
Our vision at City Life is to demonstrate and declare the goodness of Jesus from the heart of Wichita to the world. We want the goodness of Jesus to be palpable, tasteable. We want it to be experiential, not just theoretical. We want people to enter our atmosphere and to feel the goodness of Jesus because we exude it. Kim Arthur points out that the awe among these early believers occurred even after the unique event of Pentecost. I think one of the temptations we feel is to go, yeah, but man, it was crazy back then. Like the spirit fell in power and there were tongues of fire and it was nuts. This was happening after Pentecost. She says, devoting themselves to embrace these ordinary acts of worship together fostered an environment and a posture where each soul could experience and witness more and more of God. As they devoted themselves to seek God together day by day, they became a community who cared for one another in extraordinary ways, who experienced extraordinary healing, and and who had uniquely glad and generous hearts. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The awe that marked their lives came through a devotion to word and prayer and to one another. It was nothing extraordinary. It was simply a group of believers attentive to Jesus, hungry for God to move in and through them and to pour his power out among them. So a couple points of application and I'm done. If you're here this morning, And you find within your heart a sense of disenchantment. God feels far away. He feels unknowable. I just want to encourage you to admit that to the Lord. To just hold up your heart to God and go, God, I just want to admit to you that I've lost my sense of wonder. Maybe you've never felt it. God, here's my heart. Would you re-enchant my heart with the glory of Jesus? Because I want to live my life with a sense of awe. I believe God will welcome that prayer. I want to encourage you to pray that if that's where you're at. Say with Moses, show me your glory. You remember that story in Exodus 33? Moses had the audacity to say to Yahweh, I want to see your glory. God goes, you can't handle my glory. But here's what I'll do, Moses. I'll let you go hide yourself in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. And on the other side of me passing by, I'll give you a glimpse of my heel. This is anthropomorphic metaphoric language, right? It's the Bible's best attempt to go, you can only handle a smidge. Here's what's amazing. The Bible says that the God who is unseeable and unknowable, who dwells in unapproachable light, has made himself known in the face of Jesus Christ. He has made him known. And Jesus is revealed to us by the Spirit. 
The Spirit helps us to behold the living Christ. And so we can pray with Moses, God, show me your glory. I want to behold Jesus. I want to see more of Jesus. And so we begin to ask the Holy Spirit to be a telescope to the glory of Jesus into our hearts. Let's begin to pray that, church. And let's continue to devote ourselves to the Word and the fellowship and prayer but as we do so, as we come together, as, as, as we do these ordinary things, let's begin to pray Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. I just, I want to read these verses for us and I'll be done. The Apostle Paul prays this for the Ephesian believers and he prays it for us. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. And I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul prays that we would be strengthened to comprehend the love of Jesus. We can't do it on our own. We need, we need the Holy Spirit to even help us understand what the love of God even is. He prays that we would be filled with the fullness of God. We need God to help us believe that he is able to do above and beyond all that we could even think to ask according to the power that works in us. C.S. Lewis famously spoke these words. He said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I'm afraid that we also fool about in our worship for the same reasons. Because we are far too easily pleased. We lack imagination to even consider the greatness of Jesus. Church, we belittle God with slight expectations of him. But we honor him when we come expectantly asking him to show up in power. And so what if we began to arrive at worship? What if we began to go to our city groups, to our quiet times, with a sense of expectation that God would take us deeper into his fullness? What if we came asking for God to fill us with awe? Let's pray together.